Bill, let's take a look at an article, and I know that this blog is going to be probably a little sarcastic. The The name of it is uh, Another White Atheist in Columbia, and M.L. Clark is the author. It's Humanism and the Real Problem of Suffering. The writer says that regular readers know that uh, I get pretty grumpy when addressing the, the Christian Bible's awful morality. So I try to limit how often I focus on this text and the figure of Christ represented within it. And he says, I'm strongly of the opinion that fixating on religion's textual flaws is not a useful way of building a more robustly secular state. And in general, I find the whole theist-atheist divide to be a distraction. Right there, Bill, our secularist friends are interested in building a, a secular society. Yes, I have found that there are two types of humanists with whom I've actually debated. One would be what one might call philosophical humanists who believe that God does not exist uh, and that human beings are the locus of moral value. The other type of humanist isn't really concerned about metaphysical issues like the existence of God. This is what you might call a social humanist. And what these humanists are really interested in is promoting their political agenda. Uh, as this author says, building a more robustly secular state, securing rights for humanists, uh, making sure that the public square is devoid of religious discourse and uh, that the schools are free of religious influence, this sort of social concern. And for my part, Kevin, as you might imagine, I think that the theist-atheist debate is absolutely central to the question of humanism and cannot be ignored as a mere distraction. In one of the very first debates I ever participated in with Fred Edwards from the American Humanist Association, I presented a dilemma to Edwards. I argue that if God exists, then humanism is not true, because God is the locus and source of moral values. On the other hand, if God does not exist, humanism is not true, because we're landed in moral nihilism. Hmm. Since God either exists or does not exist, it follows necessarily that therefore humanism is not true. And I challenged Edwards to respond to this argument. He had no good response to the dilemma. So I think it's absolutely critical. It's a watershed issue whether or not we believe that God exists, because I, I think only if God exists are we able to affirm consistently the intrinsic moral value of human beings. And so this task of social um, reform by humanists is one that I don't think can be coherently pursued independent of the atheist-theist debate. 
Yeah. And the writer continues, the more urgent task for humanists is the quest for fellow travelers, people, that is, whose cosmologies might differ, but who share an interest in the application of comprehensive empirical knowledge to public policies and actions that maximize human agency and welfare. Now, I thought that was very carefully worded to say, I know you're going to try to approach objective morals with me, but what we need are public policies that maximize human agency and welfare. I'll say something more about this in a moment when we get to his critique of Jesus. But what we already see here is that his primary concern is not your individual ethical life, but rather societal reform and how we build a society that is going to maximize uh, what he calls human agency and welfare through the public policies that the government adopts. So this man's concern, um, I'm assuming Clark is a man, uh, Clark's concern is very much a social and political concern from this secular humanist perspective. He says, today, though, I need to call attention to one of the many awful things that Christ is given to say in, in the New Testament. Why? Because although most of my Christian friends grew up in liberal churches where Christ's lousier comments and actions are mitigated by the storytelling of church leaders, it is extremely important to remember that conservative Christians have quite a bit of textual justification for their political positions. And he continues, I've written before about the Christian Bible's moral narrative being all about individual charity within a status quo of master-slave relationships that Christ reifies rather than challenging, as opposed to advocating for state reforms that would reduce the power of masters over others in the first place. Well, I think here we see the deep antipathy of Clark toward the person of Jesus. Clark is clearly, I think, a socialist. And I use that word not as an epithet, uh, Kevin, uh, but simply as a descriptive term for someone who in his uh, ethic emphasizes the importance of social uh, goodness and public policy as opposed to individual and personal ethics. So he says that Christians uh, tend to have this ethic about individual charity, whereas he's concerned with advocating for state reforms that would reduce the power of masters over others. You see, the, the very different concern, the as opposed to improving your own personal life and living a righteous and good life as an individual, the concern here is to build a better society along humanistic lines. And the reason I think he hates Jesus is because he says Jesus wasn't a socialist. Jesus emphasized the importance of personal righteousness and ethical behavior and living correctly before God. And for this author, um, that 
is secondary at best. What really matters is building this ethical society. He says that a lot of people in the church and in church communities probably won't support this Christly view of suffering. And that's fantastic from a humanist perspective. But it's still important to remember that the view not only exists, but is also shaping public policy. So, Bill, apparently this writer thinks that the Christian view that suffering is inevitable and that we should suffer for our beliefs and things like that negatively affects public policy is rather negative. What caught my eye and what he italicized in his article was the Christian's emphasis upon individual charity uh, within a state governed by this kind of master-slave relationship. You see, conservatives tend to emphasize personal giving and charity in order to allay society's ills. Um, You support private charities to help the poor and the disadvantaged and the ill and, and so forth. Whereas for the socialist, the way in which these problems are to be addressed is through government, through society, and adopting public policies uh, that will promote it. And as I say, I'm not calling him names. When Jan and I lived in Europe for 13 years, I would say that most of the Christians in Europe that we knew and talked to would be socialists. That is to say, they thought that the way in which the Christian command to love your neighbors yourself is best expressed is through government by having government policies that would help the poor and the disadvantaged uh, and so forth who need help, rather than through private charity and individual efforts. And so what I see in in this author is um, such a prioritization of socialism as opposed to individual acts of charity that he is very hostile to Jesus because he thinks that Jesus was all about individual acts of charity and righteousness. And my claim, Kevin, in response, we'll talk about this in a minute, is that such a critique of Jesus is not only unsympathetic, but it's just grossly anachronistic, uh, as we'll see. Very good. And uh, maybe I'm not giving too much away by by asking you if the Christian ethic is, is... well, it's a combination. It's both the individual acts of charity, but also yeah. to society at large. Would you say that? Yes, I would, Kevin. It's not mutually exclusive. In first century Roman Palestine, there was little opportunity for a social reform uh, on the part of persons interested in building a better life. But in time, when the first Roman Empire to become a Christian, Constantine, was in power, then social reforms were promulgated due to Christian influences. And uh, Constantine declared an edict of religious toleration throughout the Roman Empire, which had never existed before. And of course, uh, in time, then uh, slavery was outlawed, slaves were free, 
And then much later in history, uh, after slavery had re-entered Western culture, it was through the efforts of Christians like Wilberforce that the slave trade was uh, abolished in Britain and elsewhere. So obviously Christians have been involved in this kind of social reform in addition to emphasizing the importance of a personally clean and righteous life before God. Otherwise, you are simply a hypocrite. If you are living immorally um, while advocating for this kind of moral reform on a societal level. So it doesn't need to be an either or. It can be a both and. Okay. Let's get to the passage here that he is offended by, and mm-hmm. um, I'll just synopsize it, Bill, rather than than read the entire passage. I think that a lot of our listeners and readers would be familiar with John 12, 1 through 8, when uh, Jesus, uh, about six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, and they made him a supper, and Martha served, and then Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the, uh, the ointment, of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, said, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and he uh, bore the, the money that was put in it. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this, King James Version. For the poor you'll always have with you, but me you will not always have. Now, he's got several objections to that. Yes. Bill. Let's, let's go through them. He makes a big deal about the anonymous writer of John but it's, he says it's clear that the writer recognized the source material is pretty darn lousy and was trying to mitigate the awfulness of the, ah, poverty's always going to exist. Let the lady pamper me while I'm still around. So Yes, what he means there is that the author of the Gospel of John slanders Judas by saying he didn't really care about the poor. The reason he said this was because he kept the bag of money for the disciples' support, and he used to pilfer from it. And so the author of the fourth gospel is uh, slandering Judas by accusing him of petty theft from the bag of money that the disciples carried with them. He says, but the writer of John's explanation actually makes things worse because it suggests that Christ was going around with his disciples all this time, accepting donations from whoever they visited, knowing full well that Judas was stealing from whatever the group gathered. Now, that seems to me to be a leap. Uh, There's no reason to think that Jesus knew that Judas was pilfering from the bag. This is something that John says later. Now, someone might say there wasn't Jesus clairvoyant, didn't he know everything? Well, there are occasions in the Gospels where Jesus is said to know uh, what someone's thinking, for example, and anticipates their remark. But then there are plenty of other occasions where Jesus asks honest questions like, how many loaves do you have? 
when he's going to feed the, the multitude. Um, so there's no reason to think that Jesus is always uh, exhibiting clairvoyant knowledge. In fact, quite the contrary. I think a serious doctrine of the incarnation is that Jesus had an ordinary human consciousness like we do, though aware of his calling and his mission as uh, God's son and Messiah. So there, there's no reason to think here that Jesus was tolerating petty theft on the part of Judas. And in any case, you notice that's that's inconsistent with what Clark said about how John added this note in order to slander Judas and make Jesus look better. Um, if this is merely an editorial addition by the fourth evangelist to try to make his tradition look more acceptable, then it's not something that Jesus could have known about. So you can't have it both ways. Either it's a, an unhistorical editorial edition, or it's not. Um, and in either case, as I've explained, uh, I don't think you can use it to uh, indict Jesus. Continuing the article, he says, so many of the things that Christ is given to say and do in the Bible would be regarded as unacceptable conduct among us today. And allowing your financial department to steal from your nonprofit organization while still accepting donations from others who trust that you'll use their offerings to do good, oof, that is uh, definitely high on the list. Well, and I would say further, Kevin, that I think this misrepresents the situation. He seems to think that Jesus was like the chairman of a private charity that was going about Judea and Galilee collecting donations. Uh, and that's simply not true. Um, according to the Gospels, there were several women who served as patronesses of the disciples. They had left their employment, they had left everything to follow Jesus, and there were certain women who would give out of their own means to sustain the disciples. So this wasn't a charity for others, this was the personal support on which Jesus and the disciples lived. And so even if Jesus did for some reason or another, tolerate Judas's pilfering, perhaps because uh, he knew that uh, Judas was the one who uh, would betray him, or uh, for some other reason he, he was willing to tolerate this. It's not as though Jesus was allowing embezzlement from donations that were given to charity. This was their own personal support that we're talking about here. And if Jesus had good reason to allow Judas to, to do this for a time, it, it's not at all like accepting donations to a charity uh, while it's being embezzled. He says then, uh, he accuses Jesus, who is supposed to be this supposed champion for the poor, of choosing comfort mm -hmm. over service by glibly invoking poverty as a social constant. You'll always have the poor. With you. Right. You'll always have the poor with me, so don't condemn this woman for what she's done. And I think there, Kevin, uh, frankly, it all hinges upon the person of Christ. Who do you think this is? Christ is God incarnate. He is deserving of all laud and honor and glory. And so, Jesus says, this woman has prepared me for burial. 
Um, after a burial, the practice was to anoint the body. Remember that the women came to the tomb on Sunday morning to anoint Jesus' body, but he was risen, he was gone. And Jesus says, this woman has anointed me for burial in advance, and wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will be said in remembrance of her. And so this is an honorific act that is, I think, entirely appropriate to Jesus. The problem with uh, Clark is, of course, that he doesn't think that Jesus was divine. He thinks that Jesus was just an ordinary human being and that therefore it was selfish and comfortable for him to allow this woman to uh, honor him, worship him in the way that he did. Hey, we're going to stop right there and pick it up next time on the next podcast. Continue this discussion. In the meantime, thank you very much for your prayerful and financial support for Reasonable Faith. Give anytime online when you go to reasonablefaith.org, and we'll see you next time.